This victory here is the beginning of the end for Donald Trump. I'm Jason Dick, and this is Political Theater. That was Senator Bernie Sanders declaring victory in New Hampshire in the primary there. We're joined today by Amanda Becker. She covers the 2020 campaigns for Reuters. Becker, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. Good morning from New Hampshire. Good morning. Uh, and that bit of familiarity, uh, listeners, is is simply that uh, Amanda Becker, before she was a political correspondent for Reuters, she was uh, one of one of our best here at Roll Call, and uh, and she is also a dear friend. So, welcome, uh, welcome. I, I realize that you're you're probably colder th- now than at any point this year so far. Actually, New Hampshire has been downright pleasant compared to the last few days I spent in Iowa last month when the wind chill was negative 21 degrees. Oh, yes, that is uh, – I, I remember seeing those because from our from our mutual time on the campaign trail in 2016, um, I, and we can get to that a little bit later in the podcast, I, I've kept the weather app uh, to keep, keep track of like what it's like in Des Moines. And I saw those <laughs> negative seven-degree wind chill factors and just thought – Huh, as much as I'd love to be in Iowa right now, maybe it's not so bad being here in Washington. Yeah, my eyelashes froze one day. <laughs> Did they break off? Uh, no, luckily. I got inside to a house party and, and let them thaw out. <laughs> Well, let's let's start off. Uh, let's talk a little bit about Sanders. Uh, Sanders won the New Hampshire primary for the second cycle in a row. He won in 2016. Also, it's I'm getting a little deja vu. Uh, you and I were both in Iowa in 2016, and we saw this, you know, sort of thing go down to the wire. It wasn't nearly as much of a cluster uh, in 2016 in Iowa as it was in 2020. But there was actually when we all left uh, Iowa for New Hampshire in 2016, we didn't know if it was going to be Hillary Clinton or or Bernie Sanders, who would be declared the victor. Uh, Hillary Clinton did squeak out this this narrow victory, much like Pete Buttigieg uh, squeaked out a narrow victory in Iowa. And then in New Hampshire, Bernie won. But he, what it was a little different this time. I mean, one, he had more people to run against, and, and just his margin of victory was much, much smaller. Yes. Um, so one of the things that everyone is, is, was looking for last night and is going to be talking about today and in the days to come is that while Sanders won New Hampshire – He did it with fewer votes than he did in 2016. Now, you know, people will spin this a lot of ways. They'll read this a lot of ways. Um, It could be a sign of, you know, in some cases, people say declining enthusiasm for him. It could just be because there's such a crowded field. I mean, going into this, we still had 11 Democrats. Um, A couple have dropped out. But we still had 11 Democrats, um, you know, as on the main main ballot. There are other people you've never heard of. that actually created more than 30 names on the ballot yesterday. But uh, yeah, so that's going to be something that people are talking about in the coming days, going into Nevada and then South Carolina, um, just kind of looking for overall enthusiasm because one of the arguments that Sanders has been making is he can get people to vote who would otherwise not vote. You know, bring in these people who aren't regular primary voters who aren't even regular voters in general elections, young people, people who are registering for the first time. So, you know, he needs to show that in order to have staying power, he can, you know, make good on his promise to expand the electorate. Well, and one of the things that strikes me, too, is that when you look at how many delegates were at stake in Iowa, how many delegates were at stake uh, in New Hampshire, we're still, I mean... (laughs) You know, the, the, I, I think Buttigieg has like 24 or something delegates, and, and now Sanders has mm-hmm. about 22. And, and Amy Klobuchar, who came in third uh, in, in New Hampshire, has, you know, 10 or something. I mean, we are 
even a less, long yeah. way away from getting like 1900. Yeah. <laughs> or, or, well, and that's something that Senator Elizabeth Warren was saying yesterday, both she and her campaign manager. The last two days, I, um, I've been on Warren's bus here in New Hampshire, and she told us repeatedly, even after New Hampshire, 98% of the delegates are still outstanding. Um, we've only had two states vote. Um, you know, every state has a primary in addition to U.S. territories, actually. So there are still 98% of the uh, delegates out there for up for grabs. Um, the first two states to vote, Iowa and New Hampshire, are uh, almost entirely white, the electorate, the Democratic electorate. And now we're moving on to states uh, like Nevada and South Carolina, where there are Latinos um, and African-American voters. And so they're, you know, the, the candidates who have not done as well as they hoped are saying, you know, don't write my obituary yet. We still have 98% of the delegates out there. But narrative can be a very powerful thing. And so, um, you know, some of these candidates like Elizabeth Warren are going to need to have a moment in the coming days where they can show that they're on an upward swing um, instead of kind of languishing or going down. Right. You mentioned Warren uh, and you've you've uh, and you've been on her bus and spending time covering her. Uh, I mean, one sort of knock on this is that she came in fourth. Uh, she is struggling to crack 10 percent uh, in, in the primary. And she's also from Massachusetts. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, this was Klobuchar's argument in Iowa was that she was from neighboring Minnesota and she could get Midwestern voters. She does better. She doesn't do as well in Iowa, but then does better in in New Hampshire. I mean, it, it, this this to me sort of speaks of just how singular each one of these races can be and how we put so much stock into these early states and and they sort of revel in their unique place. Uh, and it, it seemed to me, though, that I mean, and again, I was not on the ground in, in New Hampshire, but the, the, there was a little less attention to the quirkiness, the cups of bacon and all that kind of stuff. Uh, and Dixville Notch, you know, the first place to vote uh, in, mm-hmm. in, in the country this time around, because everybody was like, what's happening? We still don't know what's going on with the field. We don't have a grasp. Is, was that sort of the vibe that you were getting from New Hampshire, that even though it's it's a special place, it's a little it's a little less quirky, a little more tense? Definitely. I mean, there was a, a level of, I would say, anxiousness um, when talking to voters that you didn't get last time around um, during the primary anyway. I think people were a little bit more anxious in the general last time. Um, but yeah, I mean, I talked to one, um, well, I talked to many voters who were undecided as of Monday night and Tuesday afternoon, um, including some who were heading in to vote saying they didn't they hadn't fully decided who they were going to vote for. One woman who I spoke to on Monday afternoon at a cafe where Warren stopped, um, she had seen 12 candidates um, in person this cycle. She had read seven of their books. She had narrowed it down to two candidates as of Monday, but still hadn't decided who she was going to back. She came Warren to see Warren one more time to see um, if that would sway her at all. Um, and I texted with her last night. She ended up deciding about an hour before she went to cast her ballot. So there's just was just a sense of everyone here was trying to game out who they think can beat Donald Trump. And that's hard to predict in advance. And, you know, they're doing a lot of research and they're really kind of feeling a pressure, especially with the criticism that the process has been getting and what happened in Iowa where we didn't have results for days that 
they know that the country is watching them and that people are already making the case, you know, why do these people get such a say in this process and that they really kind of needed to take it very seriously and do their research before they went to vote yesterday. Yeah, and and I, it's it's interesting, like about that special place. I mean, it, it's it is heartening to see people that that you know are are taking this very seriously. But you know, I mean, Paul Songus won in nineteen ninety two. I mean, everybody mm-hmm. th- sort of thinks that Bill Clinton won because you know he declared himself the comeback kid and all this kind of stuff in nineteen ninety two. But I mean, that was after he came in second, and he didn't go. I mean, nobody really contested Iowa seriously. So. Is it sort of overblown? Do you think that that the that these states? I mean, although we give them all this significance, they they don't always pick the winner necessarily. Well, I would say what has changed since 1992 is 24-hour cable news that people are watching all the time. So while you, it is only two percent of the delegates that are allocated at this point. You're going to have, uh, you know. Nevada doesn't vote for another week and a half in their caucuses. So you're going to have 10 days where the narrative is the winners coming out of this contest. And I think that that can really shape people's perceptions, um, even if the math uh, isn't quite as strong um, in their favor. And so, uh, you know, there's enough time for this to affect people's opinions heading into Nevada. Early voting starts in Nevada on Saturday. So a lot of the candidates are headed there this weekend, and then they have their caucuses officially a week later. But, um, you know, time is kind of dwindling. Like once a narrative takes hold, I think it's very difficult to reverse that for a candidate. Uh, And, you know, some of them, like especially Senator Warren, are going to need to do that before the next round of people vote. And um, while, yes, there are only 2% of the delegates allocated, um, you know, the story is being told and people are watching it. Uh, you mentioned that uh, two candidates dropped out, two of the major candidates, uh, Senator Michael Bennett from Colorado uh, and Andrew Yang, who had made a sort of a, a splash as the guy who didn't wear a tie uh, mm-hmm. and, and also had, had advocated for some sort of curveball sort of politics like a universal income and, and so forth. So Andrew Yang dropped out, uh, Michael Bennett dropped out, even after canvassing uh, in Dixville Notch, uh, apparently. That did, wasn't enough to sway the eight people who vote there uh, for Michael Five. Bennett. Five, five. It's down to five. <laughs> okay, um, and uh, and and then one person whom we haven't discussed also is the fifth place finisher, uh, Joe Biden, the former vice president. I mean, you would think that this. I mean, even with Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren being from neighboring states, that and even with some of the momentum with Pete Buttigieg, you know, coming out of Iowa, that the, the vice president even even handicapping for that had turned in a, a pretty disappointing fifth place. Yeah, I mean, so Biden did not even stay to go to his own rally in New Hampshire. Um, That'll fire he, up the troops. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, you know, these rallies at uh, after voting are, first of all, they don't even open them until polls close usually because the whole point is that it, is it's supposed to be a thank you for your people on the ground, your dedicated volunteers, your staff, your people that have been going door to door for weeks now, you know, trying to churn out people to vote for you. And so, uh, you know, Biden had spent days and his staff had been all over TV for several days saying, we don't know what everybody's talking about. We're still playing here in New Hampshire. Like, we think this is competitive. We're not going anywhere. We're taking this seriously. And then around 1130 a.m. on the day of the primary, 
they announced that they are not staying for their uh, rally, which was already all set up and ready to go, and they were headed to New Hampshire. So that, you know, left eight and a half uh, South, hours. South Carolina, for, right, right. Is that, y- yes, yeah, yes, sorry. Yeah, yeah, we're in New Hampshire. <laughs> I was up very late last night. Um, yes, he was heading to South Carolina. And, um, you know, he, they, you know, made that announcement eight and a half hours before the polls closed. So if you're out in the snow here in New Hampshire. Knocking on doors. Board, right. <laughs> knocking on doors for Joe Biden. And then you hear he's not even going to be at that rally that night to thank you. Um, I don't know. I would say that probably not everybody stayed out there knocking on doors. Well, and you talk about narrative. I mean, like that that's that's a narrative right there, right? I mean, because <clears throat> there wasn't if if it is true that like some of the people found that out like hours before, you know, the polls even closed. I mean, how much how much more of a difference is that going to make in South Carolina <laughs> to be? I mean, it, it seems like a real, for, for a campaign perspective, sort of a real unforced error that you would just stay a few extra hours instead of, you know, heading to, I don't know, Columbia, South Carolina for a rally. I mean, if it, it, it seems to me that the, I mean, I, I don't mean to opine, but the, the candidate, the campaign doesn't seem to be running on all cylinders. Uh, you know, that's probably a fair assessment. Um, But to be fair, he's not the only candidate who has done that. Um, Obama would leave states that he knew he was going to lose and move on to the next state. Because what they're trying to do is, you know, get to a place where the narrative for them is better. Mm -hmm. And Biden's narrative all along has been, you know, just wait until South Carolina because he has such strong support from black voters. So I get why they did it, but what was different about it from what other candidates have done in the past is that it was done um, with a, with a rally that still went on without him, ready to go, uh, that he you know telecast into from South Carolina. So that uh, I just think I I do think that sent a message to voters here in New Hampshire, um, in particular, who were you know turning out for him and who had worked for him here. So before we leave uh, New Hampshire, at least until the general election, because it, from all uh, signs, we're, we're in for a, f- a fairly competitive uh, race in the general election, regardless of who the nominee is uh, for, for the Democrats. Um, you know, you, you, fire, you, you file on very tight deadlines uh, f- for, for Reuters. And what are some of the things that you, you would like people to know about that you, you didn't maybe ne- not didn't necessarily able to get into your copy? Uh, like what share with us some of the stuff that some of the moments that will stay with you, some of the like the, these sort of human moments. I mean, one of the things that um, uh, w- and we won't tell your cats about this at home uh, is, is that you spent a lot of time with Bailey, uh, Elizabeth Warren's dog. I mean, like th- those yeah. sort of moments, like share some of that stuff uh, before we before we go on to the, you know, the cold, hard reality of Nevada. And, and South Carolina. Um, I have spent a fair amount of time with Bailey these last few days. He is a, a gem, very good boy, as she always says. I didn't realize until I was talking to Bruce Mann, um, Senator Warren's husband, yesterday for an extended period of time at a polling location that Bailey is only 22 months old. And a 22 He's gigantic old, for t- <laughs> holy cow. Well, he's also just the most docile, sweet, chill dog. And a 22-month-old golden retriever is essentially still a puppy. So I was shocked that he was still so young. And because, I mean, he has been, 
he has had belly rubs from hundreds of people um, <laughs> in Iowa and New Hampshire at this point. He goes to big rallies. He sits there calmly while people do selfie lines with him to have their photo taken with him. Um, little kids, grown-ups, he's been, he's been a real hit, um, including with the press corps. I would never, you know, have my picture taken with a candidate, but I decided it was okay to have my picture taken with Bailey. Um, so that's kind of like one of the more personal things that you get to see that doesn't often make it into a story. Um, a more embarrassing one would be that uh, Elizabeth Warren and Senator Bernie Sanders have both seen me in my pajamas at this point. Um, <laughs> in, in the hotel, so, I take it? <laughs> yeah, so... Um, I was sharing a hotel with Sanders, uh, one of the debates. I mean, you know, we were at the same hotel. We weren't like sharing a reservation or anything. And, um, I came down to go to the Starbucks stand in my lobby and, uh, I heard someone behind me and the voice sounded familiar and I turned around and it was him. Um, you know, and I just rolled out of bed, uh, in Iowa last month, I had flown in very late the night before and I had set up a, a set alarm and went down to the lobby um, in my pajamas and snow boots. It <laughs> was easy, easiest to throw on to walk down to the lobby. <laughs> and the elevator door opened, and um, Senator Warren was standing there with Bruce. And we just kind of looked at each other, and she said, well, good morning. <laughs> and I said, good morning, Senator. And, of course, she was already in her outfit, completely ready to go for the day because she has way more energy than me, even though she's 30 years older. So, um, yeah, so those are just kind of the funnier, funny things that happen when you're sharing space with some of these candidates for an extended period of time. We've talked a lot about these four, first four states in, in February. Um, on Super Tuesday, the dynamic will likely change markedly again because not only is Super Tuesday my birthday, March 3rd, that's why they call it Super Tuesday, but it's, you know, every, like, there are, you know, major states like California and Texas uh, who, who will be voting around and Michael Bloomberg, uh, who is who has sort of skipped the first four states, he makes his sort of big play to get into mm-hmm. the game. He's spent, you know, more than, you know, $250 million on advertising. He's starting to yep. show up in polling and he makes, I mean, that will change the dynamic of this race yet again. And that's only two weeks mm-hmm. away. Are you ready for that? <laughs> I'm not sure, to be honest. Um, I mean, let's just say I'm glad I have a vacation plan for the end of March. Um, I think I'm really going to need it at that point. And and that's something that's good for people to remember. As much as we talk about the candidates who are not doing well in these first four states, there are candidates that are being taken very seriously, such as Bloomberg, who aren't even participating until we get to Super Tuesday, essentially. Um Bloomberg got into this race late. I, I believe it was November when he launched his campaign. Um, he is self-financing. Uh, he already has around 2,000 staff, I think, mainly in Super Tuesday states. Um, and he's been spending time in those states while the other candidates have been in Iowa, have been in New Hampshire. Um, so that will scramble the race again. Um, you know, Trump was tweeting last night, oh, you know, poor mini Mike didn't do well in North in uh, New Hampshire. He wasn't campaigning in New Hampshire. Yeah, he got he written in, in by three people in Dixville Notch. But <laughs> yeah, I mean, he he wasn't. It, he was a non-entity here. Um, so that will completely scramble things again in just a couple weeks. Um, you know, it's really interesting. So candidates like Senator Harris and Senator um, Cory Booker 
were basically running strategies where they had to make it through the first two or three states and at least get to South Carolina. And they were kind of running strategies that banked on um, support from African-American voters for Biden softening before then. So they would be uniquely positioned to um, pick that up, you know, if people started having doubts about the former vice president. And they were not able to stay in the race long enough to do that because of money. Um, That is not an issue for Bloomberg. So if Biden continues to weaken, um, there are going to be a lot of more moderate Democrats looking for a home. Um, Of course, some of them could go to Pete Buttigieg, um, but he does not have much support um, from Black or Latino voters at this point. And that's really going to be a weak spot for him and a narrative he's going to have to deal with going into these contests in more diverse states. So perhaps someone like Michael Bloomberg is going to be in a good position to pick up those voters over Buttigieg um, if Biden's, you know, support continues to falter. And, you know, this could be a completely different race in two weeks than it is today. Yeah. And, you know, when we talk about narratives and how like how important they are, I mean, one of the reasons they're so important is if you are if you come in fifth place, uh, it, it is difficult to go back to your to, to your donors and say like, hey, I need another <laughs> infusion of cash uh, to, to make it through the next time. Michael Bloomberg doesn't have to do that at all. He doesn't even have to pick up a telephone. And, uh, you know, I mean, he, he just writes himself a check. And when you're worth, you know, 50 billion or whatever he is, I mean, like this is this is a small part. You know, this is like buying a midsize sedan for for us. Right. <laughs> I mean, like it's yeah. like it hurts a little bit. But but overall, you you know, you can afford or maybe it. just even a really nice pizza or something. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Well, Amanda Becker, thank you so much uh, for taking a little time in the morning. I realize you have to go uh, catch a plane to to. Uh, are, you, are you going to Nevada or South Carolina next? No, I'm I'm coming back to DC. Um, Warren has a town hall in northern Northern Virginia, a Super Tuesday state tomorrow. Super Tuesday, and as I, as we will remind our listeners, it's super not just because of the voting, but because it's my birthday. <laughs> yes, this cycle anyway. Well, be safe in your travels back, and we will catch up another time. Thank you. That's going to do it for this edition of Political Theater. You can subscribe to this podcast on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. Political Theater is produced by CQ Roll Call, leader in nonpartisan political and policy news and analysis for more than 70 years. CQ Roll Call is part of Fiscal Note, a global technology and media company. Oh, we didn't get to make fun of your green Kia. Oh, it's horrible. Car. My coworkers have been complaining that I left it parked in front of the hotel while I was on the bus because they don't even like looking at it when they go out. I think that I have rented one of those green Kia sports or whatever they're called. They are. Yes, it's a Kia Soul. And it's, but it's and, like really, it's like not even lime green. It's this like horrific, like mix of like lime green and like pea soup. <laughs>